Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Cubs PS Plus podcast. I'm your host, Mike Waller. We're hitting that point in the baseball season where there are more and more distractions from baseball. Summer vacations are winding down, school is starting back up, college football is here, and the NFL is just around the corner. I don't know about you, but when the Cubs contend, I tend to stay in much more of a baseball mode well into October. In years like this, though, it's much, much easier to fall back into football and put baseball on the back burner. I'm not going to tell anyone how to be a fan, but there's still plenty to watch for with the Cubs this season. It just won't be the wins and losses. I'll stay plugged in, keep giving updates, but we'll also give attention to the Bears and my alma mater, the Iowa Hawkeyes, as a distraction from the final weeks of this season. Today I want to hit on a couple things, starting with the play this week and then moving on to why I think the Cubs should absolutely trade for Shohei Otani. This week the Cubs wrapped up a 15-15 and August, ending a streak of eight straight losing months going back to last May. While it was a 500 month, the Cubs did end with a losing road trip, losing two of three in Milwaukee and then two of three again in Toronto. In Milwaukee, the two losses came when the Brewers offense did Brewers offense things. They hit home runs. The starting pitching was solid. Justin Steele really battled through five and a third, giving up only a run with six strikeouts. And the Cubs survived a late Brewers rally to win four to three in 10 innings. Well, really Ian Happ beat the Brewers four to three because the only two Cubs hits were two run Happ bombs. Drew Smiley was excellent in the second game, throwing six scoreless innings before the bullpen imploded and the Cubs lost 7 to nothing. Adrian Sampson was not as good as he's been in other starts recently, but Sunday he had the Cubs in the game before leaving in the fourth so the Cubs could replace him for the Toronto series due to his COVID vaccine status. The Cubs were without Sampson and Steele in Toronto due to the vaccine. There's not a lot more to say there. Nick Madrigal, Nico Horner, Seiya Suzuki, and Fran Mil Reyes had good series offensively, and Ian Happ single-handedly won game one with the pair of two-run homers. The trend of an overworked and overmatched bullpen continued in Toronto, which I think we all saw coming when the Cubs traded the four top arms in the pen at the trade deadline. Javier Assad started game one and threw another five shutout innings, which brings him to nine scoreless innings against quality teams to start his major league career. Not bad at all. Unfortunately, the Cubs' bullpen couldn't hold the lead, and the Cubs lost 5-4 in 11 innings. In Game 2, the Stro Show made his return to Toronto, and he threw five quality innings, leaving with a 2-1 lead before Brendan Little made his Major League debut, filling Samson's roster spot. Little got off to a really rough start, grazing Bo Bichette with a pitch before slipping while fielding a comebacker for an infield single, and then giving up a three-run homer to Teoscar Hernandez. He got a couple outs before a walk led to his exit. Hopefully he'll make it back on the mound soon. The highlight Tuesday was the debut of another Cubs arm, Jeremiah Estrada. Estrada's arm is electric, throwing high 90s with a mid-80s slider. He struck out 40% of the hitters he's faced in the minors this season. He didn't disappoint, striking out two Blue Jays in one inning of work. The Cubs did win the last game of the series, 7-5, thanks to some solid pitching behind starter Luke Farrell, a two-inning piggyback from Manny Rodriguez, and finishing in pretty dominant fashion by Rowan Wick, who's been struggling lately. It was good to see Wick back with the late carry on his fastball and much better command than he's shown lately. The theme of the series, though, was the three-run homer. The earlier mentioned homer given up by Little in his debut was sandwiched between three-run homers given up in the first and third games by Eric Ullman, who has been having a solid season, but boy, did he have a rough week in Toronto. Offensively, Seiya Suzuki stood out with five hits across the three games, continuing his surge after a bit of a recent funk. After the series, the Cubs reinstated Steele and Sampson, moved Wade Miley to the 60-day injured list to make room on the 40-man roster for Little, and then called up Estrada and David Bodie to fill the expanded September roster. The biggest buzz of the week, though, was a statement made by Major League Baseball Network's John Morosi late last weekend, 
who said he wouldn't be surprised if the Cubs traded for Los Angeles Angels two-way megastar Shohei Otani. As you might imagine, it created quite a storm of activity on Twitter. Will the Cubs get Otani? Who knows? But like Morosi, I don't think the idea is crazy. First, let's look at the Angels. They're going nowhere fast. They've had the best player in baseball, Mike Trout, for a decade plus, and he's made one playoff appearance. An an American League Division Series loss to the Kansas City Royals in, wait for it, 2014. Over the years, the Angels have tried a number of strategies to support Trout, but mostly the team hasn't had enough pitching. The Angels gave Trout a record and massive 12-year, $426 million contract before the 2019 season. Early in Trout's career, they famously signed Albert Pujols to a 10-year contract that turned out to be mostly a bust. In 2018, the payroll was mostly dedicated to Trout and Pujols, surrounded by a fairly young team, including rookie Otani. After the 2019 season, the Angels got aggressive and signed Anthony Rendon, fresh off his Washington Nationals World Series win, to a massive contract that mostly hasn't panned out. After a good 2020, he's been hurt for huge stretches of 2021 and 2022, and still has four years left on his deal at a backloaded nightmare price of $38 million per year. The Angels have tried to improve their pitching staff, but it mostly hasn't worked. In 2020, they added Julio Teheran. In 2021, they picked up Rizal Iglesias, Alex Cobb, and Jose Quintana. And this year, they added Thor, Noah Syndergaard, who they've since traded to the Phillies. Even with all the money spent, the Angels haven't had a 500 season since 2015 when they won 85 games a year after the 98-win season in 2014. This year, they're 17 games under 500 at the time of, re- time of recording. The Angels ended the 2021 season with $112 million worth of players on the injured list, including Trout, Rendon, Justin Upton, Dexter Fowler, and Dylan Bundy, all of whom made more than $8 million per year last year, most of whom made double-digit millions. The Angels have been a mess, even with two of the best players in baseball. Their current payroll for 2022 stands just a shade under $180 million, which puts them in baseball's top 10 this year. Of those top 10 payrolls, they have, by far, the worst record. Only the Cubs and Yankees have more player salary currently on injured reserve, but half of the Cubs' total is Jason Hayward's $22 million. Looking ahead over the next four years, the Angels have almost $75 million per season tied to Anthony Rendon and Mike Trout. I'll get more into Otani's value later, but if they were to sign him to a long-term deal, a $40 million per year price tag would be conservative. That would have the Angels pushing $120 million or more for three guys, one of whom probably won't be able to play much for his remaining four years at, yes, $38 million per year. For reference, those three players at $125 million per year would be enough payroll to put the Angels 20th in baseball right now, ahead of the Nationals, Reds, Mariners, Royals, Rays, Marlins, Diamondbacks, Guardians, Pirates, A's, and Orioles. Oh, and while they're going nowhere and are spending almost $40 million on a player whose career is probably close to over, the Angels also have the worst farm system in baseball, according to the recently updated MLB Pipeline rankings. So, the Angels are going nowhere fast, and Shohei Otani knows it. He's been noncommittal and deferential when asked about his future with the Angels. He goes out every day, he plays hard, he competes, and he appears to enjoy playing and having fun with his teammates but he's also made it very clear in the past that he wants to win. The Angels don't look at all close to winning, so while moving on from Otani might be the best move for the Angels, they also might have no choice, because it seems 
Like he'll move on from them after 2023 if they keep him and do nothing. If Shohei Otani is going to leave the Angels, where's he going to go? He's going to be expensive, clearly, so that will limit who's truly in play for his services. He's 28 and will turn 29 next July 5th. He's very much in his prime with years to go, but he's not a player likely to take a short, high-average annual value contract, whether it has opt-outs or not, because this is likely to be his very best shot at a big, long contract. And if he finishes the season healthy, potentially even with a second straight MVP award, his value will probably never be higher. To understand what Shohei Otani is worth, let's go back to how we got to this point, starting with his decision to leave Japan for the majors. After the 2017 season, the Angels won the Shohei Otani sweepstakes. The Cubs were reportedly among Otani's favorite teams at the time, but the National League didn't have the designated hitter at that point. The Angels spent a lot of money on the bid process, but had the then 23-year-old Otani locked up for bargain prices for six years. He was a sensation from the start. He won the 2018 AL Rookie of the Year award, but ultimately he suffered a torn UCL and underwent Tommy John surgery. He missed all of the 2019 season and most of the 2020 season as a pitcher, but did rake as a DH with a 121 OPS plus in 2019 before struggling in the COVID-shortened 2020 season. He was back in a big way in 2021. He had an absurd 157 OPS plus with 46 home runs and a 142 ERA plus on his way to a landslide win from league most valuable player. Note, ERA plus is a stat that's adjusted for park factors and normalized such that 100 is league average. He's following up 2021 with an even stronger season on the mound with an ERA plus of 152 with more Ks per nine innings and a better than five to one strikeout to walk ratio. As a hitter, he's a little off last year's pace, but he still has 30 home runs and a 148 OPS plus with a month to go in the season. He's neither the best hitter in baseball nor the best pitcher but he is borderline elite at both hitting and pitching. Shohei Otani is not just a generational talent. He's a once-in-ten-generations talent. Even Babe Ruth, the most famous and prolific two-way player before Otani, was phasing out the pitching in favor of hitting prior to being traded to the Yankees. After being a regular starting pitcher for several years through the 1917 season, he scaled back to 19 starts with the Red Sox in their championship 1918 season, and then only 15 in 1919 before going to New York where he started only four more games in his career, which ended in 1935. I'll get to this more in a bit, but when looking at future Otani, part of the value question is how long he continues to be a two-way player who is above average with both skills. A popular stat floating out there today is that Otani is the first player in baseball history to hit 30 home runs and win 10 games in the same season. Last year, he only had nine wins and 23 starts with his 46 home runs, and it's true, Babe Ruth never did it. Shohei Otani is a unicorn, and that he's a two-way player. It, this simply doesn't happen in professional baseball, and really it never has. Pitching and hitting are both incredibly hard to do at all, and it's literally a full-time job to be able to make it in the majors as one or the other. Otani came up in Japan and was able to work on both skills, but that's even rare in Japan. Otani's success has opened the door for a few other players to try, but most players do not have the necessary skills to do both at the highest level. Everyone who pitches is a two-way player in Little League. A good number of guys are two-way players in high school. Some guys can even go two ways in college, but eventually players find that making it through a minor league system generally requires complete focus on being a pitcher or being a position player and hitter. There are players who start as a position player and later go on to pitch when their hitting career stalls or vice versa, but virtually nobody makes it all the way through as a two-way. 
even guys like Mike Lorenzen and Travis Wood, two guys who have had limited success as both pitchers and as fielders and hitters, were still largely focused on pitching. That said, the Cubs are reportedly keeping an open mind with their fourth-round pick from this past year's MLB draft, Nazir Moulet. He's a shortstop and a pitcher. Most expect him to focus on pitching, but the Cubs are going to give him a chance to work on both skills, at least to start. Being a two-way player obviously has massive value. One roster spot can be both a hitter and a pitcher. It's not just that, though. Otani is elite or borderline elite at both. Since he came to the States for the 2018 season, he's posted a career 139 OPS plus and a 135 ERA plus. He's almost 40% better than the average hitter and a full third better than the average pitcher. He can headline your rotation and he can hit in a power position in your lineup. In essence, you're getting two players in one. Anyone who votes for league MVP using wins above replacement, war, is almost locked into voting for Otani every year, given that he gets value as both a hitter and a pitcher. Unless a player has a pretty historic season as Aaron Judge is having this year. If the Cubs traded for Otani, he'd immediately become their ace and likely bat third in the batting order. So I think we can establish that Shohei Otani is a very good baseball player, both as a hitter and a pitcher. That's a start. But if the Angels are going to try to trade him and other teams are going to try to trade for him, a market has to be established out of mostly nothing. Complicating matters, he only has one year left on his current contract, has already had Tommy John surgery once, and Angels owner Artie Moreno, the owner of the Angels, has announced plans to sell the team. The Angels have three choices right now. They could sign him long-term, but for money and talent reasons discussed a few minutes ago, this seems very unlikely. Mike Trout would be hard to move in trade because as good as he is, he's under contract for the rest of the decade, and he's had injury problems of his own. Rendon is simply not tradable unless it's a pure salary dump, in which case the Angels wouldn't get much value back unless they pick up most of the money. And even then, they wouldn't get that much back. The Angels could trade him now or could trade him during the 2023 season. Either path is viable depending on the offers they receive, but his value would be highest if the team trading for him has his services for a full season in 2023. Look at a player's value in terms of war. If a player has a season worth eight war, and we assume roughly even distribution across the season, trading from the deadline will gain the trading team only about three and a half war. There are sometimes benefits to getting into a deadline situation where teams start bidding against each other with a hard short-term deadline, but trades are about value and a team will get much more value for Otani with an off-season trade. And getting more value means the Angels would likely be able to extract more from the team that's trading for him. The Angels have a third option. They could do nothing and keep him through 2023. They could be aggressive this offseason trying to surround him with more talent in the hopes that they can make a postseason run and potentially keep him longer term. This would be the biggest gamble for the Angels as they'd have to add a lot of talent this offseason to make a run and then convince Otani to stay while somehow managing what would likely become a huge payroll while the owner is trying to sell the team. For purposes of this podcast, I'm making two assumptions. I'm assuming the Angels do not extend him, and I'm assuming that the Cubs would love to have him and plan to try to acquire him. That means if I'm Jed Hoyer, I have two choices. I can work on trade possibilities, or I can sit and hope that Otani hits free agency after 2023 when I could get Otani for money. Well, truckloads and truckloads of money. The latter approach is a big gamble. Players in that stratosphere don't often hit free agency during their prime years. A lot of this is because... In many cases, the original team will lock them up long-term. But if a player of that caliber is traded, see the Mookie Betts trade to the Dodgers a few seasons ago, that team is giving up a huge package of talent and typically is going to want to sign that player to a long-term contract. I see a lot of chatter on Twitter 
asking why the Cubs would give up valuable prospects or young cost-controlled major league talent for Otani when they could just get him for cash after 2023. That's the point. Otani may not be there to get after the 2023 season if a team trades for him before or during 2023. I imagine Jed Hoyer and any other front office looking hard at Otani is going to get a read from Shohei's reps about whether a long-term contract is feasible before making a trade. As noted earlier, the Cubs were among the teams Otani liked back before the 2018 season, and given the second-half performance of the team this year and the performance of young players, I think the Cubs could tap back into those good feelings and show Otani that the team is on the upswing, which really is not unlike the pitch the Cubs made to John Lester after the 2014 season. It can't hurt that the Cubs also brought in Seiya Suzuki, another wildly popular Japanese player this offseason. So let's look at the pros and cons of pursuing Otani. Let's start with waiting for free agency. The big pro of waiting for Otani to hit the open market is that he could be had for just money, and the Cubs are owned by a billionaire owner who has shown a willingness to spend above the luxury tax threshold when the chance to win is there. I hear you, Cubs Twitter, but he really has. As they say, you can look it up. There's no risk of giving up other young talent that would be greatly missed. The obvious con to the strategy is that I think there's a very high likelihood that the Angels do trade Otani and he never hits free agency. So next, what are the pros and cons of trading? The pro is that the Cubs could get Otani for the 2023 season and extend him beyond. That extra year matters because most pitchers, especially power pitchers, can only maintain their excellence for so long. At some point in his 30s, Shohei is likely to lose a few miles per hour from his fastball and have a little bit less bite on his other pitches. That wouldn't make him worthless, but Mother Nature is undefeated, so if you're going to pay a steep price, you want to get as much peak Otani as possible. The con for trading is that it's going to cost the Cubs multiple young players, and that pool of players could theoretically include emerging favorites like Nico Horner, Justin Steele, Christopher Morrell, and Keegan Thompson, in addition to any combination of multiple players from the system, including guys fans have gotten really excited about. Guys like Brennan Davis, Pete Crow Armstrong, PCA, Hayden Wisniewski, Ben Brown, DJ Hers, etc., It's so easy to fall in love with young players and prospects. The possibilities seem almost limitless. You see that kid, and they are just kids often between the ages of 19 and 23, hit 30 homers in A-ball or strike out dozens per nine in double-A. Those are great signs, but those are not guarantees of future success. Then when you look at major league talent, players like Nico Horner seem like emerging stars, but nobody can predict the future. When I look at any trade, the very first question I ask is, who got the best player? Otani would clearly be the best, most valuable player in any deal he's involved with at this point. Then I ask how much that player will help the team he's joining. In this case, Otani would help the Cubs tremendously. They need someone to headline their rotation, and they need another power bat, particularly a lefty power bat, for the middle of their order. Otani fills both of these gaps. Only then do I look at what a team gave up to get that guy. In other words, if you're filling a need with an amazing player you're going to pay a steep price. So maybe you overpay, maybe you don't, but it's that value that matters. The Angels are likely to start any deal for Otani with the Cubs by asking for the sun and the moon. If they don't, they're idiots. This is a a once-in-a-franchise deal to capitalize on arguably the most electric player in the game during his prime. The team is not winning, and they have a baseball legend locked up for years and years to come, so they need an injection of young talent in order to have success. What should Otani be worth? I've mentioned earlier, he's a unicorn. There's nobody like him, and really, there never has been anyone like him since Babe Ruth. And even Babe Ruth wasn't that much like him because as his power ascended, he stopped pitching. 
There are literally no comps for Otani, so it's hard to know where the market will be. One way to start would be to look at Otani as two separate players. As a pitcher, over the past couple seasons looking at performance and age, his overall value lines up pretty well with Dodgers' Walker Bueller, well, at least before he got hurt, and Brewers' Brandon Woodruff. Otani hasn't been the best pitcher in baseball. He hasn't won a Cy Young Award and isn't likely to this year, but he's been in discussion among the best 10 to 15 players in the game, which is a huge value. As a hitter, he lines up with guys like Byron Buxton, Jose Ramirez, and Jordan Alvarez. Very valuable hitters, but again, not the top handful of hitters in baseball, but in the discussion of the top 10 to 15 hitters by most measures. So in essence, picture the Cubs trading for Jose Ramirez or Byron Buxton and Brandon Woodruff. Two separate deals, two separate teams. No way the Cubs could get both of those guys for just a couple players total. There's obviously some risk in a trade. If Otani gets a back or leg injury that takes him out, you've lost a starter and a big bat. Or as happened in 2019, if he hurts his arm and can't pitch, he's now just a hitter for some period of time. A little bit of that gets built into the deal, but really, the Angels are going to want to get as much value for Pico Tani as they can. One comparison the Cubs could look back on to some extent was the Hugh Darvish trade. He was coming off a great 2020 season, albeit shortened, and looked healthy when he was traded to the Padres for Major League starter Zach Davies and four prospects, including the Cubs' current number 10 prospect outfield Owen Casey. It's far from a perfect comparison, though, as Darvish was just a pitcher, was older than Otani is now, and had far more injury history. Trade values are really hard for mere mortal players, and almost impossible to estimate for a unicorn like Otani. The website BaseballTradeValues.com does a pretty good job of estimating player value using advanced metrics, injury history, age, years of team control, salary, and expected market inflation to estimate a trade value. Their site has a potential Otani trade to the Yankees estimated out and submitted by a user. Otani is currently worth 80.4 points on their scale, and in this model, the Angels would get back the Yankees' number one overall prospect, shortstop Anthony Volpe, who's worth 52.6 points, outfield prospect Everson Pereira, worth 16.8 points, catcher Austin Wells, worth 8.3 points, and right-handed pitcher Randy Vasquez, worth 3.7 points, for a trade value of 81.4. This deal for the Yankees does not include any current Major League players, but does include the Yankees' number 1, number 4, number 5, and number 16 prospects, with Volpe, number 5 overall, and Wells in the top 100 prospects in all of baseball. I used their tool to mock out potential Cubs deals for Otani. In each mock trade, I included one young Major Leaguer already seen as a piece of the, quote, next great Cubs team, and then filled in with prospects and other young players, so there's one potential deal involving Horner, Steele, Morrell, and Keegan Thompson. One key assumption, I think the Angels will absolutely want young pitching, and almost certainly at least one young outfielder prospect. Every trade involves one of these positions. And while I'm not going to go into details on individual player point rankings, every single one of these trades is based on Otani's 80.4 trade value, and every return package is between 80.5 and 83 points from the Cubs to the Angels. So in deal number one, I included Nico Horner, as he's likely the first player the Angels are going to ask about. To match Otani's trade value, I included Nico, Cubs outfield prospect Nelson Velazquez, outfield prospect Owen Casey, and starting pitching prospects Cade Horton and Hayden Wesneski. Deal number two features Justin Steele and top outfield prospect Brennan Davis, along with pitching prospect Caleb Killian, shortstop prospect Kevin Made, 
and lefty pitching prospect Drew Gray. It's a little more high-end in terms of prospects plus steel, but I think if you don't include Horner, giving up Davis or PCA is almost a given. Trade number three is the Morrell deal and could look like Otani for Morrell, Owen Casey, shortstop prospect Christian Hernandez, Cade Horton, and lefty DJ Hers. Deal number four is even more prospect-heavy because Keegan Thompson doesn't carry the high-end value that Horner, Steele, and Morrell do, largely due to his age and slightly less overall success. That looks more like Otani for Thompson, Davis, Casey, Killian, Made, and Gray. It's pretty likely that any deal for Otani is going to have to include at least one player from this group, and possibly two. Brennan Davis, Nico Horner, Christopher Morrell, PCA, Justin Steele, Kevin Alcantara, Owen Casey, and Christian Hernandez. And then there could be other value made up in terms of quantity of lower-ranked players. Hearing those names in trade probably sounds somewhat shocking, but you can't acquire great talent without giving up a lot of quality. This offseason is also a time when the Angels won't be pinned down by arbitrary deadlines or have half of baseball out of the running, as is in the case during the trade deadline. The Angels will have the opportunity to field offers and potentially get teams into bidding wars. I'm a big believer in having the best talent, so I'm 100% in on the Cubs trading for Otani. I'm not quite in the pay-any-price camp, but there's literally no player on the Major League roster or in the system that I would not be willing to include in an Otani deal. I'd hate to see Horner or PCA or Steele or Morel go in particular, but it's very, very unlikely that any of those players will ever be as good as Otani is right now at the one side of the game they play. And unlike in times past, none of the deals I laid out above would gut the Cubs system. They can deal a couple pitchers, including Steele, and have plenty of depth in the system to fill holes as early as next season. And the Cubs could deal any of those bats and be fine. And again, if the Cubs are working on a trade for Shohei Otani, look for them to be active in the free agent market, as you don't make a play for Otani without wanting to win now. Obviously, part of any deal for Otani would also involve major spending to sign him long term. There are a range of options from as long as eight years projecting him as a two-way to maybe more like four to six with a higher average annual value or potentially a cheaper deal factoring him in as a relief pitcher maybe in his last couple years. But the Cubs would likely be spending hundreds of millions of dollars on Otani. I'll save the contract numbers for another day if the Cubs do make this trade, but I've seen estimates thrown out online of anywhere from $40 million per year to as high as $64 million per season depending on the length of the deal and how many years get factors in, factored in as a starting pitcher. Given injury and age factors, obviously the shorter the deal, the higher the per year price. It's also worth noting here that Japan absolutely adores its baseball stars. Having a, both Otani and Suzuki would be extremely lucrative for the Cubs ownership and may very well help offset any costs of going over the luxury tax as a result of any Otani contract. The Cubs would sell tons and tons and tons of jerseys in Japan. Jed Hoyer has done a really good job of restocking the farm system, and the Cubs' development system has done a very good job of finding young players who can succeed at the major league level. The key now is building to win while maximizing the value of that system. I don't want to get too impersonal here because players are people, and people have feelings, and people have value. But when you get right down to the value of a baseball franchise, players and prospects are perishable assets. A player's career lasts only so long, and only so much of that career is peak performance. Some prospects show amazing flashes but then don't develop, and you wind up looking back to find that their peak value was as a 21-year-old in high A-ball. Some players are great and become part of your core, 
And some are great, but expendable to help you get other great players where your team has weakness. A good example of the Cubs not maximizing this value was Kyle Schwarber. He shot through the Cubs system very quickly and had major moments in both the 2015 and 2016 postseasons as a very young player. He then kind of languished with the Cubs for a few seasons before getting non-tendered and then later having success with the Nationals, Red Sox, and Phillies. He's valuable now, but his value will probably never reach what it likely was after that 2015 or 2016 season. You want to make the best use of the value you have in the system at every moment, and sometimes that value is best used by sending it to another team. As long as the Cubs continue to draft well and develop talent up and down the system, they can absolutely afford to make major splash trades without compromising their overall ability to compete. I think this is what Jed has been building for. If the Cubs get seriously involved in trade talks for Otani, as John Morosi suggests, take that as a sign the Cubs are absolutely in win-now mode. You don't trade four to six top young players and prospects for a guy who will be 29 next year in year one of a five-year plan. If you do that, Otani's on the backside of his career when you're actually planning on winning. If the Cubs are chasing Otani, look for other aggressive moves, such as signing a free agent shortstop, adding another middle-of-the-rotation starter, and reloading the bullpen. Also remember the Cubs have close to $150 million to spend before even hitting the luxury tax threshold next year. Even $50 million to Otani leaves plenty of room for other large signings, and Hayward's $22 million per year is gone after 2023. I'm a big believer in the Cubs doing almost anything they can to get Otani. I'm also quite confident that the Cubs won't be the only team inquiring. There are some other teams who can offer far more in terms of high-end prospects, like noted with the Yankees' potential trade earlier, like top 10 overall prospect in baseball-level talent. But there's still the fact that any team trading for Otani and meeting the Angels' demands will want to be able to sign Otani long-term, and that will take some teams out of the running. It may also be worth noting that the Angels might be open to getting a little bit less for Otani in terms of prospects if someone takes the four years and $38 million per year due Anthony Rendon off their books. If the Angels go that route, they'd still likely have to kick in cash, but it would take more teams out of the running. That would take the market down to just the highest spending teams like the Dodgers and the Yankees plus teams like the Cubs who play in big markets and are not already locked down with a massive payroll. My guess is the Angels would prefer to maximize their return and not include Rendon, but that might be an angle Jed Hoyer can play to get the edge in this deal. If Rendon can play, he'd be a good addition to the lineup, but he's not a guy that you can count on at this point in his career. I'd love to hear whether you think the Cubs should make a play for Shohei Otani and what you think could be a potential price tag. To join the conversation, please find me on Twitter at CubsPS+. Thank you for being a listener. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe wherever it is that you find your podcasts. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and just about every major podcast provider. Please leave a rating. It will help others find the show. Enjoy the holiday weekend, and hopefully the Cubs can do some damage in St. Louis. Go Cubs!